Hi everyone, welcome back. I'm recording this on October 29th. It's deep into the evening, but this was the quiet opportunity I had today. So I'm enjoying the light of the full moon as I record this. It's so beautiful. It was actually full last night, but seemingly full again tonight. So the full hunter moon is with us right now, and I hope you're enjoying it. I will post this sometime on Monday, and I will likely post another one late this coming week because we needed to catch up from one. So there'll be actually three in November. This third one's kind of bridging the end of October into November. So anyway, it'll all get it'll all get done. But I just in looking at the feminine figures I wanted to cover in our Grail series, it occurred to me that Morgan, Morgan Le Fay, was the perfect one to begin with because of Halloween, of Samhain, of All Saints Day, this time of year deep into autumn where Hecate, the dark goddess, is very present. So with that capturing my imagination, I wanted to spend some time there. And so then we'll move on into another feminine figure later in the week here. So that's the method to my madness. I hope you're doing very well. I want to share this amazing poem that found me in the last week or so since we chatted. And this is by Morgan Harper Nichols. And it so embodies, love that word, it so embodies how I'm feeling about myself, meaning my authentic self gathering in my experience of, quote unquote, her. Of course, it's beyond gender, but that divinity within, that authenticity, that self with a capital S. And I ran across this poem, and I just loved it so much. So I want to open by sharing that. And it goes, And perhaps what made her beautiful was not her appearance or what she achieved, but in her love and in her courage and her audacity to believe, no matter the darkness around her, Light ran wild within her, and that was the way she came alive, and it showed up in everything. I'm going to read that last bit again. Light ran wild within her, and that was the way she came alive, and it showed up in everything. I've long recoiled from folks who say love and light, (laughs) Actually, not from the people, but from that phrase, because I've known for such a long time in my own experience how important it is to look at shadow and embrace it and learn from it and honor it. Now, we don't want it taking over our experience, but to skip it or to pretend it's not there is to feed it. And so I've spent you know, a good part of the last decade, deep in shadow work, deep in shadow work. And only by doing that, I see now that embracing this idea of light running wild is so very, very beautiful. And and I love that because it's grounded in a depth. 
It's not just a tinny, elusive sugar high of light. It's the real deal. It's the light with a capital L. And I think when I have run into that phrase, love and light, before, it's the small L, love and light. (laughs) Because in my experience, we have to ground the true authentic experience of love and light in depth and know that all of these are weaving the tapestry of our experience and creating a symphony together. And I don't want to hear a symphony that doesn't have the resonance of those low notes, but yet, you know, we can't be swallowed by them as well. So that's the work, isn't it? Continuing to see and not be moved, not be moved off of our center, off of our joy, off of our playfulness, off of our calm spirit, off of our receptivity. This is how that integration is happening sometimes rather quickly. Sometimes it's happening in ways where we feel like we're in a dry spell, but actually so much is happening. And then we sort of catch up with that process again, consciously just trust that it's all happening and unfolding so perfectly. And I'm leaning into that more and more. So today's celebration of this first feminine figure in the Grail series Morgan, Morgan Le Fay, is a really juicy, lush, profound opportunity to embrace that darkness with the light. And this poem just, I feel, is a beautiful segue into all of that. So let's dive right in. I'll just touch on a few notes about the highlights of this Grail series itself just a few reminders that myth is alive from the depth psychological perspective. It belongs to all of us. Story and legend and myth are how we can come to understand ourselves. Just like in the dream life, these incredible images speak the psyche's language and they can be so instructive when we tune in because our resistance The resistance of the rational mind is not as alert to the wisdom penetrating. It it softens that barrier and we are in enjoyment and receptivity. So myth is alive. We talked about typically thinking about the Arthurian legends and the grail We often default to thinking about the Knights of the Round Table. And certainly that's an important part. But what we're doing in our Grail series is likening that masculine discipline, that masculine container. And again, masculine and feminine are energies within all of us. This has nothing to do with gender. But that masculine discipline, we're likening that to like, the transurfing material we've covered in this podcast, training the imagination, uh, training the emotional intelligence and our ability to hold steady 
in spite of whatever the material world is appearing as, that discipline we've likened to the Knights of the Round Table. And then last time, we talked about the prequel, the elucidation, that poem that actually precedes the Grail stories. And it's very feminine in nature. And it talked about the maidens at the well. And we're largely holding a masculine container for this most precious feminine center. The center, the feminine being the closest archetype, as C.G. Jung said, to the archetype of life itself. So again, nothing to do with gender here, but that feminine receptivity of I have value simply because I am. I am, not because I've done anything, not because of who I am associated with, not because of performance of any kind, just because I am. When each of us can touch that receptivity, that incredible wealth, just because we are, then that is what those disciplines are honoring and and allowing to flourish, allowing to burst into bloom. So see parts passing if if you need to be up to date on where we are in the series now, because those two previous episodes are important to how we're building on the material. You'll remember last time that we talked about the three principles that the maidens at the well bring to the conversation. And those were mystery, hospitality, and justice. So we likened the maidens at the well before they were attacked, before they were violated. We likened that to the part of us that has never known any suffering, the essential self that has never been harmed. And in that state, which belongs to all of us, which actually is our reality, in that state, we have a natural honoring of the mystery, a natural hospitality is is the word that is used sort of in the poem, but it's much larger even than that idea. It's, it's the idea that whatever was desired spontaneously burst forth in all of its blossoming. So that idea likens to the heart's desire that whatever would be most delightful to the self with a capital S is just spontaneously provided in fullness in joy, in delight. And then justice, meaning we're identifying with the part of ourself that has never known anything but oneness, but unity. And coming to the earth plane, coming to the material world, coming to a consciousness of separation, however it makes sense for you to think of that passage you know, leaving the Garden of Eden, if you will, that state of consciousness where it appears there is separation, that's the quote-unquote violation. Suddenly we feel assaulted. Suddenly we feel as though things are happening to us and we start moving through those stages of consciousness that we've talked about again and again, from victimization 
to agency, to states of grace, back to unity consciousness. So it's this beautiful cyclical return. But in actuality, the reality is always that we're always safe. And we're in this dimension where we're learning how to remember who we are for the first time again. We're coming to consciousness. We're coming to that realization. So we extended that idea last time saying that with all of the suffering going on in the external world, before we ever take any action, if we feel led to do so externally, it is most helpful to, in our being, return to that state where we have never been harmed, where there has never been violation of any kind, to dwell in if there is appropriate action to take in the external world, and then extending that idea one step further, just knowing that moving into unity consciousness, moving into the place where we dwell with delight in the well space, in that beautiful space of mystery, hospitality, justice, delight, that is affecting the collective material world experience. That is elevating that experience and contributing to that experience's evolution in mighty ways. I don't think we can overstate how impactful that contribution is. So when we're feeling as though sometimes we are not affecting external change, to remember that this is actually the place to do that in the most profound way is essential. So with that, that's the backdrop that we come to our first feminine figure. And there's lots of ways we could have approached these figures because they're all incredibly interesting. And I have taken a lot of this material from Kathleen and John Matthews' book, Ladies of the Lake. And they cover nine feminine figures in this text. And although we won't cover all nine, I haven't decided quite yet how many we'll cover. I'm thinking maybe four. We'll see. But you can always return to their work. And indeed, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to Kathleen and John's website because the two of them are such an incredible contribution. And they they have woven the scholarly with the mystical in such profound ways. And they're such a contribution to all of us. And so I'm going to link their work in the show notes so that you can peruse what they have to offer if you have been unaware of them thus far, because they are an incredible resource. I'm so grateful to them. But they break down the nine figures in their text according to the kindred of Arthur, the sovereign sisterhood, and the grail maidens. And so another way of talking about that is figures who were actually in Arthur's court, then the other worldly figures, 
and then those who are part of sort of the land and the adventures, but more rooted in, in the land itself. So that was one way of breaking it down. There are other ways you could categorize these feminine figures. Um, they make a really important point in the book that they're wanting to explore these feminine figures as standing alone in their own right, not by way of extension of who they were to the masculine figures. And I love that idea. And then furthermore, they sort of put the umbrella concept out that the knights are often centered around relationship to the round table and and its symbolism and its code, whereas the feminine figures are related to the lake. And when we're thinking of the lake, we're thinking of the life-giving waters, we're thinking of the Isle of Avalon, which I will talk about in a moment. Um, we're talking about feeling and emotion and the receptivity of that being state as opposed to the action state. So I liked that juxtaposition of how the characters are related, whether to the ethical code of the round table action or this feminine receptivity beingness of the water of the mystical lake herself. So I thought that was a lovely idea and, and way to frame this. And so what we'll be doing is relating to those concepts through all the figures that we explore, all the feminine figures we explore together now, starting here with Morgan Le Fay today. We'll be relating kind of with a foot in both worlds. So we'll have a foot in the world of the well, that which predates our earthly human experience where there's challenge and suffering and the growth in and through the forms of consciousness and levels of consciousness. So back to those ideas of mystery, hospitality, and justice. And then we'll also juxtapose that with more an experience of the roles that happen in our human walk and how I wanted to talk about that was by way of Robert Johnson's categories of the feminine figures of the psyche. So these are figures that sometimes can get confused in our human walk depending on what role they're playing. But broadly, we'll be talking about that which is happening in terms of the well and then also what may be happening in terms of our human walk with these feminine figures that we explore. And, you know, I just hold that broadly and somewhat loosely because these are really rich characters in the Arthurian myth and in the Grail myth. And we all have our own individual experiences of these archetypal roles and the places they hold in our individual lives and experience. So, you know, this is just a way of bringing these ideas more broadly into our awareness because we're not going to be able to pin all this down 
in one episode, even per feminine figure. It's just to sort of till the soil and aerate the soil for further exploration in our own lives on some of these themes. But I had suggested that we would talk about these feminine figures that appear in our psychological development. And I'm going to read straight from Robert Johnson's book, He, and we'll just keep these ideas in mind too of how the feminine can appear in our lives. He says, there are six basic relationships a man bears to the feminine world. All six are useful to him and each has its own nobility. It is only the contamination of one with another that makes difficulty. These difficulties are central to a man's passage through life. The six feminine elements in a man are, one, his human mother. This is the actual woman who was his mother. She, with all her idiosyncrasies, individual characteristics, and uniqueness. The second, his mother complex. This resides entirely inside the man himself. This is his regressive capacity, which would like to return to a dependency on his mother and be a child again. This is a man's wish to fail, his defeatist capacity, his subterranean fascination with death or accident, his demand to be taken care of. This is pure poison in a man's psychology. Third, his mother archetype. If the mother complex is pure poison, the mother archetype is pure gold. It is the feminine half of God, the cornucopia of the universe, mother nature, the bounty which is freely poured out to us without fail. We could not live for one minute without the bounty of the mother archetype. It is always reliable, nourishing, sustaining. Next, his fair maiden. This is the feminine component in every man's psychic structure and is the interior companion or inspirer of his life, the fair damsel. It is Blanche Fleur, one's lady fair, Dulcinea in Don Quixote, Beatrice to Dante. It is she who gives meaning and color to one's life. Dr. Jung named this quality the anima, she who animates and brings life. Next, his wife or partner. This is the flesh and blood companion who shares his life journey and is a human companion. And finally, Sophia. This is the goddess of wisdom, the feminine half of God. It comes as a shock to a man to discover that wisdom is feminine, but all mythologies have portrayed it so. So obviously these categories are discussed as being a part of the quote-unquote man's inner psychology, but I bring them up in our broader conversation about the feminine and the grail because I know I have played different roles like this and have seen these alive in my own life. And so this awareness of, you know, my relationship to my own human mother versus my divine mother and then myself, you know, who I am in in this context, my real self, my authentic self, my own inner divinity. I think this broader conversation is really important. And two, if you're in partnership, 
I think it's very helpful to see if perhaps we are projecting different roles onto each other that we are playing and need to cease playing. So that added clarity around, you know what, I think my partner is projecting their mother complex onto me and I'm just the human partner here. I don't need to take all that on. I think that sort of awareness is really helpful to us. So I think these categories are are good for both the masculine and feminine parts of ourselves to be aware of. And obviously there's work out there in Jungian thought and in indeed Robert Johnson's work about the different roles that the masculine plays, but we're focusing on the feminine figures of the grail. So that's why we're going about it in this way. But that information is also out there if you want to take a dive into that. I think I've mentioned in the past that Robert Johnson has three volumes that are often explored together, and those are he, she, and we. So that's a a deeper dive into the broader masculine and feminine roles in the psyche. But for our purposes, we'll just look at these six feminine roles for our conversation. So that brings us to actually talking about Morgan Le Fay. And she is a rich, rich character in all of the mythology of the Arthurian legends and the Grail. And I'll just read straight from Kathleen and John's text, they open this chapter on Morgan by saying, she is perhaps one of the most complex characters within our ninefold sisterhood. She appears at different levels of the tradition as goddess, enchantress, and political woman. And I'll continue to read passages from the texts here, but broadly, she began as a goddess And then as different versions of the story came into being and different authors added to the story, et cetera, et cetera, she morphed into then being sort of a witch figure and then ultimately like a bitter woman. So there's sort of a a dive as the legends are written through history of her role. And I think it's fascinating now that we're elevating her story again. And I think it's being asked to be elevated because we are, our consciousness is growing collectively. And I love this idea that she can be a goddess and in the agency of her own sexuality and power at the same time. She, as I would argue, and I think as the Matthews would definitely argue, can have a foot in both worlds. And that's what we're all trying to do, isn't it? As we move through these levels of consciousness is we're seeking to have our default position return to the well, return to who we actually are, the self with a capital S, but then be able to move with ease and joy and effect in the material plane as well. 
and, and to embrace that. And so I look at Morgan Le Fay as this incredible figure that's actually being reclaimed as a figure who is very skillfully doing both things and doing them both very well. But depending on when you happen upon her story in all the versions of the grail that are out there, she might be the goddess version. She might be just this bitter enchantress that's trying to seduce Arthur as a half-sister. I mean, there's all kinds of convoluted versions of her. But I really like turning to this idea and reviving this idea that she is this powerful feminine figure of great agency with a foot in both the Avalonian world, which would be very similar to the well, you know, the well of the maidens before there's any violation or any suffering or any thought of separation from the divine. And then she has great agency in the material world, in the plot, in the characters and the circumstances of the story. So reading again from the text, The Ladies of the Lake by the Matthews, her Avalonian nature, they say, Morgan is an ancient figure who maintains the magic of the lake while simultaneously fulfilling her role as a half-sister to Arthur. The role of Celtic goddess has not translated well into medieval tradition, where the position of women did not allow an autonomous and unmated figure like Morgan freedom to roam at will. The necessity for her energetic and inspiring presence meant that the respected goddess figure had to be reframed as enchantress for her to have the requisite freedom. So she's basically sort of a product of her time in that, you know, she couldn't be this sort of feminine force at large in the world. Going on, they say, Morgan is truly one of the paramount ladies of the lake. She rules the land of Avalon, which lies over an unnamed lake on the margins of this world with the other. Let us look more closely where we find the following description of Avalon. The Island of Apples, which men call the Fortunate Isle, gets its name because it produces all things of itself. The fields there have no need of the plow of the farmers. Of its own accord, it produces grain and grapes and apple trees. That sounds a lot like the well, doesn't it? There, nine sisters rule by a pleasing set of laws those who come to them from our country. She who is first of them is more skilled in the healing art and excels her sisters in the beauty of her person. Morgan is her name, and she has learned what useful properties all the herbs contain so that she can cure sick bodies. She also knows an art by which to change her shape and to cleave the air of new wings like Daedalus. When she wishes, she is at breast, Chartres, and Pavia. And when she wills, she slips down from the air onto your shore. And men say that she has taught mathematics to her sisters. So we get this beautiful image of bounty, as well as Morgan's ability to shapeshift and take on any form, which if we apply that 
to using our trained imagination that is allowing the external world to mirror our imagination and heart's desire. I love that idea. I love that link and symbolism there to what we've been exploring in the podcast together. In fact, here is a passage written by a German 12th century writer who said of Morgan, when she began to demonstrate her magic powers, she had very soon circumnavigated the world and come back again, both in the air and on the earth. She could hover at her ease on the waves and beneath them. She was totally indifferent as to whether she lived in the fire or just as much at her ease in the dew. And when it took her fancy, she could change a man into a bird or an animal. Mighty was she in magic, and her life was greatly in defiance of God. For at her command were the birds in the wild, in the woods and fields, and what seems to me greatest, those evil spirits that are called devils. They were all at her command. She was well capable of marvels, for dragons had to bring from the air support in her affairs, as well as fish in the sea. Moreover, she had kin deep in hell. The devil was her companion. He sent her aid, even from the fire, as much as she wanted, and whatever she would have from this earth she took without peril, in ample measure, all for herself. The earth bore no root, the power of which was not as familiar to her as the back of my hand is to me, this earth never acquired a better mistress of magic arts than Fair Morgan. I love that. And obviously that writer's perspective was characterizing her as evil and against the church, against sort of the religious consciousness of God. So I would put the consciousness of that writer more in the space of the work ethic by me consciousness that we've explored together where religion, organized religion, you know, is the prevailing sentiment. And so to that sensibility, she, her consciousness, the Morgan consciousness was evolved beyond that. And so it was perceived as threatening. But I love reading that passage and thinking about transurfing because to me, it was showing that she wasn't affected by the external appearance of anything. She was able to stay centered in her divinity and relate to the external world as she chose to by use of her imagination and her will, which in this, you know, 12th century text was considered magic and dark magic even. But I love rethinking and reimagining of Morgan who was once perceived as a goddess of Avalon and then as an enchantress or a dark magician as just an amazing feminine example of in our modern parlance here of, of the podcast together is a great transurfer, a great use of her imagination, user of her imagination. So when I read that passage, it just leapt out at me like, oh my gosh, she just knows how to engage with the quantum field, so to speak. And I think that's really how we could define any quote unquote magician. And if you get the magician card, 
in the tarot. You know, we often talk about in the Lenka Latanska work, we talk about channeling magician consciousness when we are training our imagination. So all of these really lined up very beautifully in a way I wasn't even anticipating, but I think is really, really exciting when we explore these feminine figures because she is an example of someone in these stories who had a foot in both worlds, I would argue, and has the divinity, has the goddess side, but also was able to wield her agency and her imagination in the external world in such a way that she was quite miraculous and, of course, feared from a medieval perspective, but quite miraculous in terms of her ability to not be swayed by appearance and only engage with what she intended to see and therefore saw it. So moving back to the Matthews text, now we're going to talk about how Morgan, the Raven Queen, or in other words, the darkening, if you will, of Morgan, diminishing her perception as being goddess-like and, and moving her into a more distrusted version through the stories. Here's some passages referring to that. In Western society, we have grown used to perceiving archetypes as good or bad, so that when we come across a divergently polarized manifestation by the same archetype, we grow confused. This is due to the dualistic philosophy of the West, which has a tendency to polarize everything in this way. Before we read on, we should contemplate the manifestations of many native and eastern deities who may have both compassionate and wrathful appearances. Neither quality negates the other, for the wrathful face of a goddess like Kali may warn and admonish us for our own good, while the compassionate face of Terra may give us healing and encouragement. Morgan has the power to heal or harm. She seeks lovers only to destroy them. She has an island paradise to which few come, but she does not let visitors out again. Such features continually recur in her mythos, and it seems difficult to reconcile them. Celtic tradition supplies the answer in Morgan's prototype. And then they go on to talk about another figure from which a lot of her qualities probably sprang in terms of context, but Again, that's really deep into the scholarship, and I'm not going to dive that deeply here for what we're exploring today. Moving on, though, in their text, despite the wealth of the earlier Arthurian tradition with its deep roots in Celtic antiquity, it is the Morgan of later tradition who is best known. We may be forgiven for not recognizing the earlier figure, lost as she is to the toils of a stock enchantress who might better furnish a Walt Disney cartoon than grace a medieval epic. The shadow of Morgan in Arthurian literature is longer than the figure who casts it. She represents a potentiality that is feared. Sexuality, intrigue, and enchantment are the features which have given her her power. Her medieval motivation is only as a sorceress, because Mallory, one of the later authors of the myth, has demoted her from goddess to mortal woman. 
The Matthew summarized by saying, Morgan starts life as a shape-shifting goddess and ends by having her shape shifted by the Arthurian romancers. Her blackening takes place gradually and is the result of a series of romancers who reframed the myth to suit their own purposes. Like a major character in a soap opera who cannot be entirely dispensed with, Morgan is given many different treatments, which render her less and less sympathetic. Instead of being the healing sister, she becomes the skeleton in Arthur's family cupboard. Like the Gnostic Sophia, she has suffered a mighty fall from goddesshood to enchantress and finally into bitter woman. Surely it is time for her to resume her wings and fly where she wills. Just as Merlin survived in the other world, retreat, so the real Morgan remains in her secret inviolate realm of Avalon. So again, depending on which Arthurian myth you happen to be reading, and there are so many out there, she can be this wonderful healer who the knights and Arthur go to in Avalon and in the worldly realm for the gifts of her medicine, the gifts of her knowledge. She can be seen as a great magician who worked with the figure Merlin and was trained in those arts. She can be seen as a bitter woman or seductress who, you know, seduced Arthur and, you know, schemed and plotted against him, depending on which version and author of the story we're encountering. So we're seeing the arc of the feminine be diminished and rise depending upon the version of the story. But I like pulling back from that and envisioning her and reestablishing her as this wonderful figure with a foot in both worlds. She's in the Avalonian well space where she is divine and in the earthly realm where she has an acute and formidable control of her imagination and emotional resilience so that she can use her calm and her purpose to create what she wants to see in the material realm. So I find her this fascinating, fascinating study in everything you and I have been studying together. And I I love the idea that we can link that to discovering the grail itself as, as this feminine figure. So let's look at those six categories, again, that Robert Johnson talked about. He talks about having a human mother, which is your actual flesh and blood mother. He talks about having a mother complex, and that resides, again, I'm reading from his text, entirely inside the person themselves. This is the regressive capacity which would like to return to a dependency on the mother and be a child again. This is a man's wish to fail, his defeatist capacity, his subterranean fascination with death or accident, his demand to be taken care of. This is pure poison in a man's psychology. It seems very possible to me that in the medieval texts and in the various versions of the Arthurian story, that perhaps this figure of Morgan Le Fay 
has moved among a lot of these categories. And I definitely see here how this character could be the projection of somebody's mother complex, for sure. And then, of course, we have the mother archetype. If the mother complex is pure poison, then the mother archetype is pure gold. That would be her and her abundance in cornucopia. So that could be her goddess version. Okay, that would be that psychological archetype. I don't see her showing up very often as the fair maiden, although she could be an inspiration figure for sure. She could be sort of a muse probably to some degree. Wife or partner, that's a potentiality. And then Sophia, the goddess of wisdom. So you can see just among these six archetypes of the psyche that Morgan Le Fay could move among many of those as a female figure in the story. So I think it's just really fascinating to keep that in mind. And in fact, I'll read a little bit further from Robert Johnson's text here because it's not that we have different relationships with different figures at different moments in our evolution. It's mixing them up and having lack of clarity is where the trouble comes in. So let me read from Robert Johnson's text here. All of these feminine qualities are useful to man, even the mother complex, which is the most difficult. Faust had to rely on his mother complex to take him to the place of the mothers for his final redemption. It is only in the mixing or contamination of one aspect with another that causes such profound distress. Mankind has a terrible propensity for making such muddles. Let us look at some of these contaminations and see the destruction which follows. If one contaminates one's human mother with one's mother complex, he will blame his actual mother for the regressive quality that is his interior mother complex. He will see his mother as a witch who is trying to defeat him. It is commonplace for a young man to blame his mother or mother substitute for his own regressive mother complex. If he contaminates his interior mother image with the mother archetype, he will expect his flesh and blood mother to play the goddess of protection for him, a role which only the archetype can provide. He will make ridiculously excessive demands on the mother aspect of the world and demand of the world that it owes him a living, preferably without effort on his part. If one contaminates his anima or fair maiden with his interior mother image, he will expect his inner woman to be mother to him. A very common contamination is the overlay of mother and wife. Such a man will expect his wife to mother him instead of being a companion for him. He will demand of his wife that she fulfill his mother expectations for him. So, and then it goes on to explain more, but you sort of get the idea there. And I think it's easy to make the argument that all the roles and variations of Morgan and how she is seen could be shifting through these layers of the psyche, depending on who was writing about her or what character was interacting with her and perhaps projecting onto her, which is really fascinating to me. So this idea that we're bringing to the table is that she's this incredible figure that has a, a foot in both worlds, and she's an example of that. 
And so if we liken that back to those beautiful qualities of mystery, hospitality, and justice, definitely the idea that she transcends duality, that she isn't just a goddess or just a human woman, is a way of honoring the mystery, of honoring that she can fluidly go between both worlds and effectively reside in both worlds. The fact that she is a healer and that she has so much knowledge to offer as balm for people and and the fact that Avalon itself is basically always in bloom to me really harkens back to that idea of that beautiful hospitality that just bursts forth automatically. And then Justice, she has the ability to control her imagination. She has agency. She has an expression of her sexuality that is not just tied to being somebody's partner or being identified only in relationship to the masculine counterpart. She has that agency herself of how she uses her beauty and her sexuality. And again, depending on where you see her story or or which version, you know, that could be a really beautiful part of the story or it could be seen as a manipulation. But we need to pull back from that idea and, and say she herself is owning that part of her and making those decisions for herself and has the ability to not just be polarized as an extension of a masculine character or not having any sexuality at all. There's that split that often happens when talking about feminine figures that you're either the virgin or the whore. You either are a mother figure or chaste or, you know, you are the seductress. And I think she's offering this wonderful idea that her sense of justice, her ability to wield her imagination powerfully, her ability to have agency with sexual expression on her terms, that in ways that don't polarize This is part of the justice that she brings to us as this beautiful, powerful character. And then, of course, she is a goddess. So in terms of the well itself, she does reside in Avalon. She is a goddess of an otherworldly realm, just like the maidens at the well that that we have referred to. So all of these ideas together... I think, give us a beautiful concept of relating to this first feminine figure. And with the full moon happening right now and with Halloween happening right now, I just wanted to get this out into the world, into the world for us to enjoy together these rich, rich images of Morgan Le Fay. And we will continue this conversation with our next feminine figure, although I haven't chosen her yet, And I will post that very, very soon here in the next few days. But enjoy this beautiful, magical, witchy time and just 
give a little contemplation to how this figure might be showing up in your experience or in your projection, or maybe you've received the projection of this figure in some way. And let's reimagine how we can claim the beautiful agency of having a foot in both worlds with this beautiful image of Morgan Le Fay. Thanks so much for spending tonight with me. And until next time, take good care. everyone. If you're enjoying this podcast, remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if my work is nourishing your heart and imagination, consider supporting the Apothecary podcast. Just follow the links to make a contribution. And for the full scope of my projects and offerings, including my weekly newsletter, visit LoriGreen.net.